Hey, Twisted History listeners, you can find us every Wednesday night on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Here is a bulletin from Kennedy's Motorcade. Seven, six, we have main engine start. Gutted shells of buildings, flames raging out of control. The devastation is so widespread. Follow the security alert earlier this morning. It is July 20th, 1969. Breaking news, major corruption crackdown going down. Time to make up your mind about people as never. Sonny, there's only one word to describe what's happening, and that is panic. The description on one wire service, mass description. Hey everybody, welcome on back to Twisted History, the Twisted History podcast brought to you by Barstool Sports. Um, I am looking dead in the eye, I'm looking dead in the eye at, uh, at John Kelly, our producer, He's, uh, the consummate professional. He's actually on the road with Vibs. He's uh, doing the um, whatever the hell that is, uh, bus tour thing with Vibs and a couple other uh, derelicts. And then looking also dead in the eye because I'm cross-eyed. I can do both at one time. I'm looking at uh, Jerry Thornton, a repeat offender here on uh, Twisted History. He's done a couple with us in the past. And as soon as I gave him the call, put out the bat signal, uh, he jumped at the opportunity. Uh, welcome on in, Jerry. It's good to see you again, my man. Hey, John, uh, large. Great to hang out with you guys again. And when you told me the topic, I thought, all right, Jeff Probst and uh, reality TV on CBS. Okay, no. No, but it's still a topic I'm into. So thanks, sir. We did the Twisted History of Survivors Part 1 back when Barstool was doing Barstool Survivors, Surviving Barstool. I think Tommy Smokes was the guy who won that. I'm sure of it, where everyone kind of lived in the office for a week and you weren't allowed to give away the fact that Zah got knocked out the first day, even though I saw him in the uh, production booth every day for radio. So we had done this. We did this. We'd recorded this at the same time. And it sort of had some, I don't know, cross-promotion to a certain degree. But there's so many other survivor stories that we weren't able to get to. So as I'm talking to Jerry, Jerry's always the type of guy who's like, oh, I'll just find a couple too. I mean, obviously, Annie beats the bushes and gets most of the shit. John is always good to come up with some stuff. I always come up with some stuff. And then normally when I have a guest on, they sort of go over with the flow. But Jerry's like, oh, I'm going to take a look if I see anything interesting. So I said to him, this is who we're going to do this week. I know about that. Please do whoever the hell you want. But know that in the Twisted History of Survivors Part 1, for people who didn't tune into that one, it was a good one. There was a Robertson family that survived a whale attack. There was some guy, Jack Renton, who lived with headhunters, and he survived that. There was a guy, Alexander Selkirk, who raped goats. I don't know why I wrote that down. There was a guy, Fernal Lopez, who became a hermit, I think on the same island that Napoleon wound up dying on. We talked about the USS Indianapolis, and that's why we started that Survivor one. Because there was a guy, and his name escapes me, but I think his grandfather was one of the survivors of the USS Indianapolis that was hit by a kamikaze, went into dry dock for repairs, came out of dry dock on a mission, got hit by a torpedo, sank, all the guys went into the ocean, and a lot of them were eaten by sharks. So that was USS Indianapolis. We went a deep dive in that, no pun intended, uh, on the first episode of Twisted History Survivors. And then we did the British Airways Flight 5390, for people who don't remember that, that's when a there was a wrong screw attached to the front windshield of this flight 5390. So the windshield had flown off at the very beginning of the flight and the pilot got sucked out and the his stewardess grabbed his legs 
And then the next stewardess grabbed him. I think might have been a male steward. And then another stewardess grabbed him. So there's essentially two or three people holding this pilot who was dangling like a like a, a paper towel out the window of your car, just battering around. And he wound up living. And they wound up, you know, surviving that and landing the plane right. So anyway, that was the twisted history of Survivors Part One. And it was enough. It was fun. It was fun to do. And um, but then these other ones just drop into your lap. There's so many stories of survival. And last week, Jer, we did the twisted history of animal attacks. Myself and Vibs had did it. And there was a lot of people who didn't get through that one. Like there were a lot of, not not listeners, hopefully everyone got through it. But there weren't a lot of survivors there. Like we talked about this tigress, uh, this, this, this panther or leopard over in India, this tigress over in um, in uh, in Africa and this other pride of lions that are killing hundreds and hundreds of people. This, this brown bear that terrorized a uh, terrorized a a town in Japan. Then we're talking about the deadliness of hippos and all that kind of stuff. So there wasn't a ton of survival last week. So this week we're going to give you some ultimately good news, right? Like even though there's some dire situations here, <laughs> by definition, at the end of each story. There'll be a survivor on the other end. I hate to, to spoil. Right. Yeah. A little, <laughs> little optimism because it, it right. shows what human beings are capable of enduring. Right. Like, like it's funny, when you th- floated this topic to me off the top of my head, I said, all right, I've read this book and I've read that book. And it's weird how many books I've read in the past, like nonfiction, obviously about people enduring like incredibly extreme conditions i mean i i could have I, I could even done into thin air which i've read a couple times about everest but you know there were too many survivors for it to make this one this is really about sort of the the real people who rise to the top yeah and right? i think there are like to your point there's a ton of movies made about survivors like i remember we had to read um alive when I was in oh, school, I've, about the everybody read it because yeah. people ate other people. Yeah, and they they crashed. I think in the Andes, yeah, right? The Andes was a soccer team. Yeah, the soccer team, and they wound up eating the and and then that became a big thing. And so there's been so many survivalist movies. Even that one, a hundred and whatever hours, hundred twenty four hours or something. Hundred hundred twenty seven hours. Yeah. yeah, cuts his arm off. Great stories. Sure, and if you want to see a film where James Franco viscerally hacks his arm off at the elbow with a with a knife that's the movie for yeah. you but i'm giving i gave that a knife. wide wide berth oh you yeah, know what thanks. i i got a little bit of shit last week we were talking about shark attacks and i think the guy who brought up hippo attacks his name was marius ells and i said oh what a uh what a coincidence ernie ells is known as uh the shark and he's not at all it's uh, no. uh we'll Greg, Greg, Greg Norman. Norman is the shark. So I got a bunch of right. people. One, one's from Australia, <laughs> one's from South Africa. But you know what? They're practically neighbors. Yeah, and they're also tall. Separated by the biggest ocean. In yeah, the world, they're tall, still, right? Are they tall and toe-headed? I mean, I remember when I said the pilgrims came over on the Mayweather because I was watching some fights beforehand. I ate an earful of shit for that. So um, we're not perfect here. We're just trying our best. Uh, but anyway, let's see if we could survive this one. The reason that I was doing this, too, is that a listener whose last name is K-O-C-H, which I know is the billionaire investment guys. I call it Coke. I know Mayor Ed Koch, maybe some other people pronounce it differently, but his name was Michael Koch. And he brought to my attention a story I never heard of before. I just never heard of. And it's cut and dry. Very interesting. And it's the story of J-A-T Airlines Flight 367. 
So if you know about this story, just turn this off for a good 10 minutes or something and skip ahead to the next one. But for, I didn't even know what JAT Airlines was. I've never flown JAT. I, I, you know, it sounds like JET being mispronounced, but it was the largest airline of Serbia, which is formerly Yugoslavia, without getting into the history of that, which we will do at some point. So JAT actually stands for Yugoslavensky Aerotransport. I tried to do it with some sort of Eastern European accent. Jugoslavensky, whatever. So Jugoslavensky Aerotransport, JAT. Then in 2013, the government of Serbia and Etihad Airlines entered into an agreement that reorganized the operation of JAT Airways. And now it's named that household name, Air Serbia, which I know we've all flown Air Lingus, Air Serbia, and uh, and the like. But that's not important. JAT, JAT Airlines Flight 367 was McDonnell Douglas DC-932 aircraft, which exploded midair while en route from Stockholm to Belgrade on January 26, 1972, a year and a month after I was born. That's not true, 1972. A month and a day after I was born. I was born on Christmas Day, 1971. So it would be a month and a day after I was born. So a DC-9 aircraft explodes midair between Stockholm and Belgrade. When the plane exploded, it broke into three pieces, spun out of control, all three pieces, and they all crashed near the village of Serbska Komenic, Komenic, which is now in what is called the Czech Republic. Of the 28 people on board, 27 were killed. See what that is? That's a little bit of foreshadowing. 20 People who did the math at home said, wow, there's a survivor. The Czechoslovak Civil Aviation Authority later attributed the explosion to a briefcase bomb. This was in 1972, and between 1962 and 1982, so right in that 20 years, Croatian nationalists carried out 128 terrorist attacks against Yugoslavian civilian and military targets. So the Yugoslav authorities suspected that Croatian terrorists were to blame for bringing down Flight 367. And the day of a crash, a bomb also exploded aboard a train traveling from Vienna to Zagreb, injuring six So there were two terrorist acts on that same day. No arrests were ever made. And there's a conspiracy theory that there was no bomb at all and the plane had been mistakenly shot down only a few hundred meters above the ground by a MiG fighter of the Czechoslovak Air Force having been mistaken for an enemy aircraft. That wasn't proved. So that was just kind of a rumor that it was shot down by a thing. People believe that it was done by a terrorist, right? Either way, it's a terrible story, particularly for the families of those 27 of 28 people on board. But what about number 28? What about that 28th person? And that's where this guy, Michael Koch, had had opened my eyes, had made me aware of a young lady, Jerry. Her name is Vesna Vulovic. Vesna Vulovic. V-U-L-O-V-I-C. Vulovic, Vulovic, whatever it is. She was a Serbian flight attendant and the sole survivor of JAT Flight 367. She holds the record (laughs) for falling the farthest without a parachute and surviving. She was 33,330 feet in the air, according to the black box. 33,330 feet in the air. And she survived the fall. She received the Guinness Book Prize from Sir Paul McCartney. 
that 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 got me there a little bit too. Like on top of all this shit, she fell over six miles, six fucking miles, Jerry. And, and the Guinness Book of Records decided to honor her because she survived. I'm going to tell you how she survived in a second. Why wouldn't I? Right. And, but when she and got so the award, clear, she wasn't like encased in like the. The, the bathroom on the plane. Like, this was, this was a free fall. No, no. So it it's a little bit deceptive, but okay. there was, believe me, she fell out of the sky. Please don't desecrate what she had done. Sir Paul McCartney did, and I don't need this shit from you, Jerry. But Listen, I've, I've never fallen more than 10 feet off a ladder, so. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. So her survival uh, I'm, is. I'm not one to yeah. begrudge her, her record. She was pinned to the fuselage. When that part of the plane had cracked, she had a drink cart. They came flying to her, which knocked her back to the fuselage, and she was pinned to the fuselage. And when the cabin depressurized, uh, she was stuck there. So now this spinning third of the plane that she's stuck to the wall of as it's descending six miles, when it lands, it lands on a pitched snowy mountain slope, which softened the impact. As you can imagine, if you hit it at the right angle, it can be something else. But normal, sure, like like Indiana Jones in short round. Sure, absolutely. But if you're falling over six miles, there is a better than good chance that your uh, that your heart would explode. Like I, I've gone. Have you gone scuba diving, Jerry? You strike me as a scuba guy. Yes, so, I, like I have a little bit. Coming up quickly, John. You've scuba, right? I mean, coming up quickly, the bends and all that stuff. Like we just know about atmospheric pressure and what it does to you. If you go from six miles to zero within a second or a couple of seconds, your heart tends to explode. But her abnormally low blood pressure prevented her heart from bursting on impact. Volovich said that she was aware of her low blood pressure before even applying to become a flight attendant and knew that it would result in her failing her medical examination to become a flight attendant. So she drank three pots of coffee before she applied to be before she took her physical to become a flight attendant. So she raised her heart rate, her blood pressure rather, in order to become a flight attendant. And then that low blood pressure in turn saved her heart from exploding when she fell 33,000 feet uh, in the air. Okay? So (laughs) she was discovered by a villager named Bruno Honke, H-O-N-K-E, who heard her screaming amid the wreckage. Right, because this wreckage all of a sudden comes going by. Her turquoise uniform was covered in blood, and her three-inch stiletto heels. They made sure they made that a, a point, which are hot as balls. Turquoise uniform, three-inch stiletto heels. Like it was tough for me not to masturbate to this. But her three-inch stiletto heels had been torn off by the force of the impact. So to leave the shoes on, no way. Honky had been a medic during World War II and was able to keep her alive until the rescuers arrived. This is what I wrote in. Some say he's the best honky ever. <laughs> Just like the word honky. Uh, but she did not walk away on skate. Poor Valena Volovich. Uh, v- she suffered a fractured skull. Both of her legs were broken. She had three fractured vertebrae, one of which was completely crushed. Her pelvis was fractured and several ribs were also broken. She spent days in a coma and was hospitalized for several months. Her injuries resulted in her being temporarily paralyzed from the waist down, but she made an almost complete recovery, although she continued to walk with a limp. Volovich had no memory of the incident. I find this to be fascinating. She had total amnesia from the hour preceding her fall 
until one month afterwards. Volovich's parents told her that she first learned of the crash about two weeks after it occurred, and when she found out what she had been in, she fainted upon being shown a newspaper headline by her doctor and then had to be tranquilized. So it's one of those hysterical amnesia-type situations that we often hear about in soap operas and whatnot, but which we kind of never believe. This woman didn't have a horse in a race to not believe that, but she was so hysterical, she didn't remember anything from before the wreckage, an hour before it had happened, to a month after she was in the hospital, which is crazy. For future reference, should a flight attendant have regular blood pressure, or are they all would they all benefit from having... Low bread, like next time I get on a plane, I want to bring a sphygmomometer and just check the pressure of every one of them. And by the way, I use the word sphygmomanometer every time I ever get the chance to. And the, the, the last flight attendant I had would have needed to survive by her excessive eye makeup and, and lip liner. So, so, but I'm all about having them survive, maybe carrying me down because they've got that they, they, they didn't have enough coffee. I mean, there could be a Vesna law where they, they, they insist upon lower blood pressure, but it's just one of those things, a stroke of luck for her. She, the last thing she remembered was greeting passengers as they boarded. And then the next thing she remembered was seeing her parents in the hospital room about a month later. Still, she had no qualms about flying once she had uh, recovered. None. As a matter of fact, she wanted to go back to work as a flight attendant, but JAT Airways gave her a desk job instead where she was negotiating freight contracts, feeling her presence on flights would attract too much publicity because she became a major celebrity in Yugoslavia. As you know, Yugoslavia does not have a tremendous amount to hang their hat on, so having somebody who had won this and having Sir Paul McCartney come and give it to her must have been a big deal. So she was a frequent guest on national television shows right up until 1990. When she became blacklisted for taking part in an anti-government protest, right? Yugoslavia does not. <laughs> and the only reason she avoided arrest, which might have, you know, led to a little bit of death, was because the government was concerned about the negative publicity that her imprisonment uh, would bring because she had became well, such a national darling. She still attended annual commemorations of the crash sites until they were stopped in 2002. They stopped commemorating for some reason in 2002. The daughter of the firefighter, who I believe is Honky, that saved her, Honky's daughter, bears her name, as well as a local hotel called Pension Vesna, Vesna, in the Czech Republic near the side of the crash. Her final years, kind of sad, her final years were spent in seclusion. She suffered from PTSD and a tremendous amount of survivor's guilt once she was told about the ordeal that she had survived. She divorced and she lived alone in her Belgrade apartment on a small pension until her death the day before Christmas in 2016. I like that story. So we're going to start off talking about survivors. Why not talk about some Yugoslavian broad? I'd like to just reduce her to that. Some Yugoslavian chick um, skirt who fell uh, six miles out of the air and survived. I always wonder. And you know what? Uh, and all government-run airlines who do that deserve the protest because you've got someone who can plummet 33,000 feet and live, and you put her at a right. desk? Yeah. Then that that that's on you that she bears a grudge because that's the person I want in the air. And I won't me. say Google the shit out of her, as I often do. She's an attractive young woman. 
So it was one of those things where, you know, she was fearless about it, wanted to go up in the air. I don't agree with that. Like one of the things that we had said yesterday, excuse me, last week with animal taxes, I didn't have a tremendous amount of sympathy for Steve Irwin. I like Steve Irwin. I like his whole family. Steve Irwin put himself in a situation where he's going to get stabbed in the heart by a stingray. Similarly to the way that I put myself in a situation where I'm going to get stabbed in the heart by, an, you know, an aortic block. Right. Like that's that's the life we chose to lead. So or, or walking through Times Square or that girl who got her arm bit off by the shark and then got on a surfboard six months later. People think that that's a, you know, I don't know. They think that that's inspiring to me. That's just plain old stupid. So I'm kind of glad she didn't go back up in the air, to be honest with you. Fool me once is what I say. One of the things that I'm doing tomorrow is I'm going down to New Orleans, uh, Jerry. I'm going down to New Orleans, and I'm going to be judging a barbecue competition called Hogfest. I'm going to talk about it a lot uh, when I get back. While we're down there, we're getting a guided tour of the World War II Museum. The Saint is going down with me, and the new World War II Museum down there is supposed to be fantastic. The reason I mentioned this and the reason I started with a, uh, a story about a flight attendant is because I'm going to be flying in the morning. And every time I fly, I pop a 3G. It's just the way it is. That's what I fly with, 3Chi. So 3Chi, 3CHI is the name of the company. It's the industry leader in Delta 8 THC products. There's CBD and then there's THC. And right in the middle of it, not in the middle of it, skewed towards the THC side, is this stuff called Delta 8. It's a federally legal version of THC. It's a more functional alternative to marijuana, which makes me paranoid. This gives me less anxiety and zero paranoia. So I love this shit. I eat the brownies now. I eat the Rice Krispie treats. I eat the cookies. And on top of that, I eat the gummies. Two flavors that I like are black raspberry and watermelon. So I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. 25 milligram gummy of the Delta 8 from 3G is a fantastic thing to take when you're getting onto a flight that's anywhere from like three to five hours. So you must be 21 years or older to purchase because like I said, it's not CBD. It's got some shit in it. So it's a little psychoactive, and it will give you a buzz. So you got to use this shit responsibly. You can go to 3chi.com, the number 3chi.com, or you can go to retailers around the country. I think it just moved into Walmart. But if you go to 3chi.com, you can uh, get their Delta 8 vapes, gummies, tinctures, and oils, and use the code TWISTED2021. You'll receive 5% off your order. Why only 5%? Because it's just that good. So TWISTED2021 at 3chi.com. I like the watermelon gummies. It's the Delta 8 products. Go out and get them and fly the friendly skies. Well, Large, if you should, God forbid, get stabbed by a lethal animal down there, whether it's a stingray or a, you know, a, a tourist or some drunk on Bourbon Street or whatever, I won't do what I did with Steve Irwin, which is make a Halloween costume out of your grisly death. Yeah, I did that. He oh, was okay. He was See, that's, dead that's crossing maybe line. five days and uh right before Halloween mm. and uh and did that. And then within twenty four hours there was a South Park episode about Halloween where people were dressed as as Steve Irwin. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that, really? I'm going to hell for that one, but you know what? I re- I regret nothing. I, right. I won't do it for you. So sur- survive that on do your not. preaching. Yeah. Please don't. Thank you. I appreciate that on behalf of my family. There's always a picture we don't want to get out. That's one of them, Jerry. You know what I mean? Heartless son of a bitch. I'm going to move on to a guy. I don't think we have many men in this one. As a matter of fact, this is going to be the only gentleman that I uh, that I mentioned. His name is Jose Salvador Alvarenga. Jose Salvador Alvarenga. He was born in El Salvador. 
but he fled north in 2002 from Mexico after being stabbed in a bar and brawl. And he found work as a fisherman in the oceanside town of Chiapas. Chiapas. He was nicknamed Piggy, or Chanca in Spanish, by the locals due to his appetite and his fat build. And he was adept at deep sea fishing during the day and then drinking like a fish during the night. It sounds like an okay Sewataneo type um, type existence. So, so far, everything is good with me and this guy, uh, Jose. On November 17th, 2012, Salvador set out on a two-day fishing trip with a younger companion he hadn't met before. This guy's name was Ezekiel Cordoba. They went out for a two-day fishing trip. And Ezekiel's nickname was Piñata. So Piggy and Piñata, after taking in a large haul, got caught in a massive storm. Two other boats were sunk in the storm, but they survived, even though their motor did not. They had to cut the motor, and, and uh, their motor had burnt out. Their boat was a 23-foot topless fiberglass skiff equipped with a single outboard motor that no longer worked and a refrigerator-sized icebox that they used to store fish. It had no oars, no anchor, and no running lights. After three days, with the storm still raging, the local police called off the search for all lost vessels. Salvador and Ezekiel, I like calling Piggy and Piñata, were floating hopelessly uh, west, and they were presumed dead by everyone who was looking for them. The two men had to dump their catch, so they had all this fish on board. It was worthless, so they had to dump their catch in order to stay afloat during the storm. But Salvador and Ezekiel caught fish, turtles, and seagulls with their bare hands while they were stranded and drank their hot blood in order to avoid uh, dehydration and starvation. It's a tough, tough road to hoe. They still had to deal with the sun. To avoid burning the crisps every fucking day, both Piggy and Pignata spent all day huddled on that overturned ice chest that I had mentioned. It was just big enough to shelter them both from the sun. So they spent all day huddled underneath an ice chest. But there's nothing they could hide to avoid the depression and the mental deterioration of just being lost at sea. After four full moons at sea, they lost track of days, Jerry, so they had no other way to measure time. And a full moon happens roughly every 29 and a half days. So after about four months, four full moons, Ezekiel, Pinata, began refusing hot blood and rainwater. He was delirious and despondent, and soon after that, he was dead, right? Alvaranga claims that Cordoba made him promise not to eat his corpse when he died. So Alvaranga kept Cordoba's corpse on the boat and even spoke to it. Like a demented Mexican weekend at Bernie's. Oh, like a volleyball. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Wilson. After six days, Piggy realized his descent into insanity and he threw the corpse overboard and wondered how long he should wait before killing himself. But instead, he kept with it. He existed now on a diet of raw jellyfish and turtle blood. Every morning, he kept sticking his hands into the ocean and plucking out jellyfish. He kept ducking into his ice chest all day and then getting up and paced the boat all night once dusk arrived. Day after day, moon phase after moon phase, full moon after full moon, he hung out alone on a boat. I I think about solitary confinement and we always like, you know, you look at uh, movies like maybe Papillon and stuff. And I always thought that solitary confinement, particularly being a father of three, would be a nice little break for me. Like, I always thought I'd be okay with it. As long as there weren't rats or anything, it was just like three hots in a cot. 
and I was in darkness for 21 days, I think I'd be able to do it. But I really don't know what it's like. I've never been in absolute darkness. Like when they talk about driving from L.A. to fucking Vegas. You know, you ever see when you're driving through the, the desert, if there's no stars out, if you turn off your light, it's true absolute darkness. It's the scariest thing in the world. Like it's impossible right. to do. I've never been in that. I've never been so like lonely or, 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 or like secluded or anything like that. So I really don't know how it plays tricks with your mind. Have you ever been in a situation, Jeff? Never alone for that length of time. I always think my, my idea of what solitary is, is I think when uh, Warden Norton threw Andy Dufresne into the, into the hole and all he got was three times a day, a door would slide open, they'd throw a meal at him and, and slide it back. And I, I, I while, yeah, I, w- I would love that. We all have hidden in the bathroom before just to get away from our kids Right. Yeah, more than a day of that, and yeah, I'm guess it would probably drive you fucking crazy. Yeah, yeah. E- exactly. You can only uh, pleasure yourself so many times, <laughs> you know, before you you just need I, to talk to somebody. A, yeah, yeah, you need a vitamin and a hot towel. Uh, so anyway, so now Piggy's brain started giving him vivid hallucinations, and he said later on, without those hallucinations, he would have killed himself. He was talking to the hallucinations and almost became like a friend. He found something in his mind palace. He continued to drift west, catching turtles and interacting with his hallucinations. It had now been 14 full moons. So it's been a year and two months since he had set off on his three-hour tour. Pinata had died ages ago. Salvador had been adrift at sea longer than any other person in recorded history. We like to break records on this uh, podcast. And then one morning, he noticed a large number of seagulls over his boat. He's always seen one or two seagulls at a time, but this was way too big. A flock that large meant there had to be land somewhere nearby. So he spotted a tiny island the on the islet of the Marshall Islands. It's the tile islet of the Marshall Islands. And he saw land for the first time in 438 days. So we talk about Andy in the hole. We talk about sneaking into the bathroom for a couple hours. 438 days adrift on hot blood and jellyfish. Like more than the COVID lockdown. Absolutely, yeah. Struggling, splashing, crawling up the beach. He collapsed once he got to uh, the the, uh, shoreline, and he slept there naked on the beach for hours. He finally awoke, staggered towards the trees, hoping the island was inhabited, and it was. He found two of its only residents, Amy and Russell. Salvador was naked and holding a knife, hadn't cut his hair or walked on land for over a year, and he only shrieked at them in Spanish. But the Islander couples took him in anyway. I probably wouldn't have. They cooked him some pancakes. What a first meal, by the way. Pancakes. Holy shit. That must have been just fantastic. I'm picturing Randy Quaid. Yeah, something. Like dangling his twig and berries, the hair out to here, and and yeah, yeah, only. But I just think that if you're at sea for 438 days, like – well, you know, you mentioned Wilson. You take that movie and you think about Tom Hanks when he gets back to the banquet and there's the crab and he's, you know, thinking about it. It's the last thing that he wants to see. I think 438 days at sea and all of a sudden somebody rescues you and the first thing they cook you is a nice short stack. Oof, oh, shit. That's yeah. living, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. That's that living, that would have been if they handed you a menu. That's what, <laughs> yes. that's what you would have ordered. Right. <laughs> but if he didn't land in this tiny, tiny island in the middle of the Pacific – 
if he would have missed this, which he could have very easily have missed it, he would likely have kept drafting west for another year at least before hitting land. They had plotted him out with all the you know currents and whatnot. If he didn't come upon this tiny, tiny little atoll, he would have gone west for at least another year at that pace. I don't think he would have made it. He was taken to the hospital, and after 11 days, Alvarenga was deemed healthy enough to return to El Salvador. His journey in that small-ass boat that lasted 438 days and took him somewhere between 5,500 and 6,500 miles, depending on how his boat had drifted. He went somewhere around 6,000 miles. It only took him a half a day to retrace in a jet, which got to be a little frustrating. In 2015, he gave a series of interviews about his ordeal to a journalist named Jonathan Franklin, who then published his story as a book called 438 Days, An Extraordinary True Story of Survival at Sea. Pretty descriptive uh, title. Shortly after the release of Alvarenga's book with the ghostwriter Jonathan Franklin, the family of Pinata, Ezekiel Cordoba's family, out of the clouds, sued Alvarenga for a million dollars, accusing him of cannibalizing their relative in order to supply, uh, in order to uh, survive, despite their pact that Cordoba would not be eaten after death. They never won any money from him. Thank God. Imagine you go through all this and you get sued for a million dollars. <laughs> Salvador is still alive today. We don't know much about him except he was diagnosed with anemia. He has trouble sleeping and he developed a very rational fear of water. And I think that puts a nice little bow on it. This guy stays away from the water. Good on you, Salvador Alvarenga, who is the guy who survived the longest amount of time ever alone in a boat. Right? So there's two two little records that we just broke there. And for future reference, my family, if I'm ever in the same situation, I'm the guy who dies, don't sue the guy who survived. Like, let him eat me for the love of God. If I'm dead anyway... What good am I? I'm either going to be eaten by lobsters at the bottom of the ocean or by this guy who can, like, tell a good tale about how I died honorably to save him. So I like the fact that they didn't sue him right away. Like, instead of suing him right away, they waited until he wrote a book and it started to kind of catch some traction. And then they said, oh, yeah, we need a million dollars. So we were just talking about going crazy from being uh, alone and stuff like that. I use the word crazy very lightly, but I know that everybody kind of loses it every now and again, particularly during the pandemic and for whatever reason. And one of the things that we like to say here is that therapy can work for just about anybody and you won't know until you try it. Myself and Annie have tried it one time or another. I know we spoke to Vibs. Jerry, I don't know if you're a big fan of therapy. I'm not forcing you to be. But if you did need it, one of the better ways to do it is through this better help. It's a customized online therapy that offers video, phone, even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anybody if you don't want to. But if you do want to see somebody face-to-face or on camera, you can. You fill out all their forms and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you're your greatest asset. Here it is. This podcast is sponsored by Better Health. This podcast wants you to seek therapy if you think it'll help you. And this podcast listeners will get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash twisted. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P, betterhelp.com slash twisted. I had said it before, but it's always a good time to start investing in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And even if you don't believe in it, maybe try it and you'll be pleasantly surprised with how just a little bit of therapy, a little bit of saying some stuff out loud can really get your chickens in a row. 
Um, that's the second of three ads on this one. I think I pured that one too. All right, so uh, fell the furthest amount, spent the most amount of time at sea. I don't think we're breaking any more records. The rest of these people that we're going to speak about, one of them is pretty fucking gruesome, and the other two are pretty historical. They're all gruesome to a degree. This is one that I just didn't know about. I'm always amazed how, like, Rosa Parks wasn't the first, right? She wasn't the first. The young lady who tried, who refused to go to the back of the bus before her, um, she just didn't fit the bill for what they were trying to get across. So they, they left her story out of it. I mentioned it in Twisted History of Bad Bitches, and Rosa Parks came along the second, and she got all the accolades. But it's usually the other way around. If you're not first, you're last. And Sacagawea was first. As a result, everyone knows the story of Sacagawea, or at least it's it's familiar. She was an Indian woman, Native American woman, indigenous woman, whatever you'd like to call her, who enlisted with her husband with the Lewis and Clark expedition. She was an interpreter, and she was the first ever interpreter on this trek across the American continent. Lewis and Clark, right? Sacagawea was the guide. She led them all across the countryside. I remember this. Reached the coast and found the most elbow room we ever had. Elbow room was like uh, schoolhouse rock. So anyway, Sacagawea was the shit we all learned about her in school. She wound up saving the group, Lewis and Clark, from starvation, uh, avoided them from being in like certain wars. She became a folk hero. She's got hundreds of either statues or parks or like hiking trails named after her. She even has this coin. Yeah, the Sacagawea dollar coin was introduced in 2000, but it's not been minted for general circulation since 2012 because we're so sexist and racist towards in no that's not true it's because nobody gives a shit and there's no demand for dollar coins but it was a thing for a while people collected Sacagawea uh dollars but they're no longer minted that's the person Sacagawea was the first but as is the case most first you rarely hear about the seconds but the second woman to cross the continent was arguably more fascinating arguably more fascinating than Sacagawea her name was Marie Dorian wasn't her Indian name, but she had married a French fur trapper named Pierre Dorian. So Marie, she's a young Indian girl, um, indigenous girl, Native American girl. I'm not sure, but I'm going to go back and forth saying those three things. Whichever one fits your, you know, your personal taste, please use. I'm not trying to insult anybody. I got in trouble for saying Alaska and uh, Eskimo instead of Inuit once. Um, so Pierre had married this indigenous woman, Marie. Pierre himself was also half indigenous. So Pierre, Marie, a bunch of other people signed on to join billionaire John Jacob Astor, his overland party. John Jacob Astor wasn't going, but he hired a bunch of people to be in the overland party. And they were scheduled to leave St. Louis and loosely retrace Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea's route from just a few years earlier. This was in uh, 1811. Put a pin in that. But the purpose of this trip wasn't exploration. It was to establish John Jacob Astor's fur and goods trading empire in the remote Pacific Northwest Territory. So this was a money grab. Astor was sending a bunch of people to set up his post on the West Coast before anybody else did. Astor's plan was to send a large party overland across the Rocky Mountains through lands that had been unseen by European settlers. And on the way... They would meet up with indigenous tribes that had never seen a white man before. 
So on top of this treacherous terrain, they'd be meeting people who probably wouldn't want to see them or be scared shitless by them. Okay. At the same time, Astor sent a ship from the east coast of the United States around the tip of South America and back up the west coast to rendezvous to rendezvous with the Overland Party at the mouth of the Columbia River. And that's where he would establish the first American trading outpost on the west coast. That's how John Jacob Astor was going to put his footprint. He was going to be the Walmart of the west coast. And that trading post was going to be called Astoria, sort of like Queens, because John Jacob Astor was a very, very, um, <laughs> he wasn't a shy fellow. It was going to be called Astoria, and it was going to be absolutely fucking uh, majestic. So 25-year-old Marie Dorian, along with her husband and the rest of the Overland Party, embarked from St. Louis in what I had said before, 1811, and they were destined for the Pacific. Adding to the difficulty of this trip, Marie brought along her two infant sons, and she was pregnant with her third child. <gasps> That's fucking crazy. So now she's going to essentially, she's essentially going to walk, paddle, or ride horses almost 3,700 miles across uncharted wilderness with two infant sons and another on the way. <laughs> right? <laughs> Uh, so the horrors the Overland Party endured over the next 12 months rival anything in American uh, exploration. They were lost for weeks without food or water in the hostile Hell's Canyon region of the Snake River. Many of them succumbed to the elements, starved, or went mad, which we spoke about. You know, mm -hmm. when this going gets tough, some people just lose their shit. After slaughtering their horses for meat... Marie had to trudge through the snow carrying two young boys on her back while she was carrying low with her third kid. Eventually, most members of the expedition resorted to eating beaver pelts or their own moccasins. Marie eventually gave birth at a native settlement near present-day Oregon-Idaho border. That newborn died within a week, so she had to keep moving. Right? Idle hands are the devil's playground. So she finally had the kid. The kid dies. She got the other two on her back, and she's got to fucking keep moving. After reaching the Pacific, they finally make it to this majestic Asoria. What was left of the party found Astor's trading post on the verge of collapse. I had mentioned that they left in 1811. It might have given some people a clue that there was something called the War of 1812. That had broken out, and the British had conquered Astor's Fort almost immediately to get their own foothold on the West and Coast. And just, just to reiterate, so, so the British had to go also around North America or around the uh, Southeast Asia to conquer the West Coast of the United States. I swear to you, Large, until this moment... I had no idea that the British captured anything on the West Coast during that war. Yeah, they were they were yeah, burning they down Washington D.C. while this was going on. Yeah, and and so that's one of the things I've never heard of this woman. I've never heard of Mary. That's the only reason why I'm doing her. You know, mm -hmm. so Marie, her husband, her two surviving children, then had scrubbed the mission. They traveled to another trading post that was further inland. So they made it out to the coast by the edge of the Columbia River to Astoria. It's fucking under British rule and everything is fucked up. So now they go inland to another trading post where they would live as fur trappers with several other men. So things are going okay for a while. Two years later, in 1814, 
one of the men who was a fur trapper stumbled back to the cabin, covered in blood and beaten pretty badly. Marie's in there cooking with her two sons. The whole party, including Marie's husband, Pierre, had been killed while they were out hunting. So the only people now left in this what was once a nine-person settlement at a fur trapping thing was Marie, her two sons, and this guy who was beating half to death. His name was Leclerc. So she put Leclerc on a horse, mounted a horse with her other chil- mounted another horse with her children, and she rode to the nearest cabin, which was five days away. Okay, Leclerc died on the way, so Leclerc didn't make it. But Marie and the two kids now. She's lost a kid. She's lost her husband. And I'll give you the numbers at the end of it. But she's lost a bunch of people, okay? When she finally reached the cabin that was five days away, it was the only outpost of white civilization in the territory. She found it empty and covered with blood also. Every person who she knew in the region had been murdered. She was now facing winter with two young mouths to feed in one of the most brutal wildernesses of North America. There was no one alive that could help her. And she couldn't stay in any cabin at any of these outposts because if she was found by this hostile band of warriors that were just killing everybody with a name, she'd be murdered as well, along with her kids. So Marie, now 28, now a widow, right, who now has a dead kid and two others, she had to keep these two kids alive. She traveled high through the mountain pass like a fucking hobbit. In the snow, she found a ravine. She slaughtered the horses. She smoked their meat, made clothes and shelter of their of the horse's skin. She braided intricate rodent traps with the mane hair. She did this so methodically and to such perfection. She caught and smoked enough meat. She kept her children dry, and they survived a brutally cold winter of unending misery. I mean, I've been stuck at fucking bus stops in the rain, and it seems like that bus is never going to come. This poor bitch is a fucking warrior. In late March, at first snowmelt, she took her children west on foot because she already cooked the horses, scaling down a mountain range until she happened upon a friendly tribe of the Walla Walla people. God bless the Walla Wallas. I, I don't know who the hell they are. I'm a fan of Wawa. I don't know much about the Walla Walla people. But those were the people that said, you know what? Get in here. We're taking you to the nearest fort that we know is safe. So they take this exhausted 28-year-old woman with her two kids to the nearest fort. She set up shop there, finally, in what's now Oregon. She remarried twice. It's a good story. She had three more children. She had five children in total who lived and eventually died a respected member of her small community. But it's worth noting, neither her sacrifice nor the deaths of the 61 people in her party were ever acknowledged by John Jacob Astor, who summed up the failure of creating Astoria by simply saying, my plan was right, but my men were weak. Time will vindicate my reasoning. So on top of this being a great story of survival of Marie Dorian, it's also a story of um, somebody who's incredibly myopic in uh, in uh, in Aster, and he could go eat a dick. So that's the story. And I got to think that anybody else would have finished that sentence. My men were weak, but let me tell you about this badass warrior princess. Never, never. You, I mean, Sacagawea got a dollar. 
Marie Dorian had never gotten a hiking trail. She never got anything except, except for a mention on what a lot of people consider one of the greatest history podcasts in the history of podcasts, and that's Twisted History. We just there right there. And, <laughs> and keep her story in mind the next time you're really hacked off because your au pair uh, didn't like serve your kids the fruit that you had left for or or god forbid your doggy daycare place doesn't really like you know take your 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 you know shih tzu for a walk or whatever this woman walked two kids across the wilderness and then back again and was slaughtering horses and making them into shelter like a tauntaun and then right right now take take the three of us and give us some horse here and say, make a snare so you can catch rodents. And we're all just going, fuck it, I'll starve. Yeah, right. uh, that's it. Something. Guys, eat me. Eat, you know, eat me all you want. I, You know what? I think it's one of those things where I don't call out John Jacob Astor for having these people do that from the comfort of his, uh, you know, his cushy New York apartment at the time. Um, but it just is a wake-up call on just how tough I'm not. I think, I think, you know, all these stories do t- kind of give you something. But these stories, I think so far, these people are victim of circumstance more than anything else. Like Marie signing up for it at that time and being a, a victim of historical circumstance. The, uh, the gentleman, uh, Piggy, who was cut out to sea, that was an act of God that did that right. to him. Do you know sure. what I mean? And then the young lady who... Um, had survived the giant fall of Vesna, she was, uh, that was an act of terrorism. Like it's sort of an act of circumstance. Like I think for a personal thing for people to have gone through, there's so many survivor stories that way in that respect. And I'm going to tell you a real quick one right now. And this one's a little bit more recent. It's 1978. And it's a story of Mary Vincent. I remember this story and Mary is still around. And I'll tell you about her in a second. But when she was 15 years old, Mary, in 1978, she was 15 years old. She was hitchhiking to get to her grandpa's house in California. I know that sounds stupid. Whenever I start a story like that, Jerry, people are like, fucking hitchhiking in California. Back then, people it was hitchhiked. A different, it was a different time. Right? <laughs> Back then, people hitchhiked. People thumbed rides. I mean, the Incredible Hulk was based on the fact that he was able to thumb rides from town to town. I know that predates you, but there was a, a TV show called The Incredible Hulk at the time, and it was Bill Bixby. And he just used to thumb, you know, right. whatever. It's people who hitchhiked. It's, it wasn't the smartest thing in the world, but it happened. So please don't think that this is one of those things where – she did something that was out of the ordinary. She was 15 years old. She was going to her grandpa's house. So she decided to thumb a ride, right? Um, A blue van pulled up and offered her a ride. Even though she was around other hitchhikers, the man said he could only take her. That's a, that's a warning flare. That, that sets off a couple of flares. So it's getting a little bit more. But stupid. not when you were born in 1973, like her, that was just like my lucky day. So she's, yeah, she's 15 years old, 1963, yeah, 63, 70. She's 15 years old. So this blue van says he can only take her in a moment of stupidity. She was tired. And even though she was, you know, kind of alarmed by it, she just wanted to get off her feet. So she decided to take the ride. And she got into the van, and the van was driven by a man named Lawrence Singleton. Singleton is his last name. During the ride, Singleton knocked her out with a sledgehammer. So he hit her with a sledgehammer, then drove her to a deserted area. He tied her up, and he raped her throughout the night. 
Okay, we'll get through that real quick. The next day, we're not getting through it real quick. This is the heart of the matter. The next day, Singleton cut off Mary's forearms with a hatchet in an attempt to prevent her body from being uh, identified. So he hacked off both of her arms from the elbow down. She was conscious but in shock and losing massive amounts of blood, so she passed out and went limp. Believing that she was dead, Singleton threw her body off a cliff where she landed 30 30 feet below in a concrete culvert off Interstate 5 in California. But she wasn't dead. She just fell 30 feet and she had her fucking forearms chopped off. Naked and searing in pain, freshly raped and freshly hacked, she fought off the urge to fall asleep and give in. Instead, she covered what was left of her arms in mud, packing it all down to essentially stop, essentially and effectively stop the bleeding. Then she climbed back up the 30-foot cliff and began walking down the rural road, holding her muddy stumps upright so she would not bleed out. The first car that drove past her had two men in it that quickly sped off once her condition came into view. The next vehicle with a couple in it pulled over and drove Mary Vincent to the hospital. I'm going to stop there for a second because I want to get your take on that. When I said that this girl, 15-year-old girl, she's got no forearms now, mud packed in them, she's naked, and she's walking down a highway with her arms, or what's left of them, flailed above her head. Do you blame the guys that took off? Like, as the two guys came close, they saw what was going on? Like, to me, that's a terrible thing. Like, I'd like to think I'd stop. But it was like two young guys. That's, I mean, I guess that's that's an... If I found those guys, are they at fault? You know, like what happens if no one else came along and she died? Like, how do we feel about that? I, don't, I hate to like stop that, but it, it's something that kind of bugged me as I read this story. Right. When let's, that's one of those situations we don't have to uh, translate in terms of the culture at the time. Put yourself in that situation tomorrow night. You're going somewhere. You have a destination to get to, and there's a girl with no arms flagging you down. Like you just. You just want to get to the house to watch the hockey game. Like what, like what's, what's going to come out of this? I mean, it's like, if I see a card by the side of the road now, I go, I'm not going to stop and see how they're, they're, they're yeah. doing because they're 15 year old girl though, Jared. Like, I don't know. I'm trying to go back and forth. I, I'd like to think I'm a good enough person that I'd stop and give her a hand, but wow, give her a hand. that must've been give her a, a hand. Ter- that's a terrible, <laughs> terrible choice of words. How dare you, sir? Um, and you don't have a wife with you to sort of be that moral anchor to say, why, why would I pull, why would I have hurt this girl? Cause you know, you're going to end up on trial for hurting this girl. Um, yeah, yeah. But the couple know. did the right thing. I, I, I'm, I'm indifferent to the guys that drove. Yeah. I was at first. I was uh, incensed. Now I'm indifferent. Either way, she did get to the hospital. She was fitted with a pair of prosthetic arms once she was nursed back to health. And that teenager, Mary Vincent, within six months of the attack, was now sitting in a courtroom on the stand and told the jury everything that Lawrence Singleton had done to her during those hours that she was held captive. So this guy got caught, and she's on the stand within six months. Lawrence Singleton was found guilty of attempted murder, rape, and a litany of other sexual crimes. However, 
Due to the very lenient sentencing laws for sexual crimes, Singleton was sentenced to just 14 years in prison. Which, by the way, was the, the sentence for armed robbery. It's the maximum sentence of life for a sex crime. Armed robbery. I, 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 I got that, I, you son of a bitch. I, yes, you know what I, I hate? I hate my. I'm doing a lot right. of self-loathing right. right now. I mean, you're 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 a worse hack than Singleton. See what I did there? Hack. So he gets. <laughs> Why are we laughing? He this, gets, this woman's out there I know. somewhere. I'm, he gets. I'm sorry. Yeah, so am I. He gets sentenced to 14 years only. Eight years later, he's released and back on the streets for good behavior. Does eight years. When he was released early from prison, this poor girl, Mary Vincent, had such terrible nightmares that on one occasion she broke her own ribs from jolting awake during one of her night terrors because this guy was out and about. As a direct result of that poor sentencing, the Singleton Bill, Lawrence Singleton, the Singleton Bill was drafted, which stops the early release of perpetrators who committed crime involving torture, and now the minimum sentence of a crime involving torture is now 25 years. So something good had come out of that. But the Singleton bill never affected Lawrence Singleton, who got out in eight years. Nine years after his release, he killed another young woman named Roxanne Hayes. She was 31 years old and a mother of three. Singleton was again arrested because he was at the scene of the crime covered in blood after a neighbor called in to report the assault. Mary Vincent's out of the fucking clouds again, chose to testify in court against him, sharing what had happened to her with the jury, and facing her attacker nearly 20 years later, Singleton was convicted and sentenced to death for first-degree murder. He died of cancer while in prison before they got a chance to give him the needle in 2001. So that's, that's kind of a happy ending. But if you decide to look, Mary Vincent has fallen out of the public eye. But she was a big proponent, obviously, for victims of sex crimes and torture. She'd gone on to, like, help design some prosthetic that allows people without arms to bowl. She became an artist. A lot of her art has sort of, like, fantasy women in it, like these strong warrior princesses and something like that. So she did make something. Like, she was able to go and continue and have a full life, even though this horrific night of rape was capped off with the removal of both of her forearms and then she was thrown off a 30-foot cliff into a culvert where she crawled to safety flagged something down and had to testify against this scumbag twice before putting him in prison where he ultimately died to me that's a goddamn survivor by every definition of the word and how about that both these women ended up being stronger than the guy that that yeah, one hundred percent. Do the men. Yeah, you know, and that he died of cancer, and I, I like to think that laying on his deathbed, he was thinking to himself, like, "What did I do to deserve this?" Right. Yeah. Yeah. I and- really thought this is really unfair to me, and you know what? I wish they had cured them of the cancer just so that they could have given them the lethal injection. I love the Irish saying, "I twice. hope he dies roaring." Like my family, every now and again, if they bust that out and they say that about somebody, I hope he dies roaring. I'm like, oof, that's big. Yeah, that's and a I, biggie. I, I hope those hope those two women got together right. and and sucked back some champagne on the day. He, oh yeah, he, the second died. one died. Second yeah. one he killed. She was the mother of three. The oh, second Jesus, one, yeah. So it was yeah. one of those things. And again, yeah. like me and Jerry poke fun just because we're trying to kind of make light of some of this stuff. But I mean, it's as as a true uh, degree of heroism um, involved with all these stories. But 
that can't make people feel safe. And so that's the ham-handed uh, segue with uh, Simply Safe. I feel better leaving the house. My parents are coming over to stay with the kids, but I just feel better having Simply Safe in the house. Um, it's an award-winning technology uh, uh, security system. It's got all the bells and whistles that you need. You go to simplysafe.com and they will tailor a system to fit your house to make you feel safe, right? They take it to the next level. They have service there around the clock that is there anytime that you need them. If it's a fire, a, bur- a burglary, a medical emergency, even a burst pipe or a problem while you're setting up your system, Simply Safe has a person with the expertise to help you 24-7. There's always help there, so you will get a safe feeling that I doubt you got with your old security system. All you have to do is go to simplysafe.com slash twisted. They spell it incorrectly. S-I-M-P-L-I. S-A-F-E, simplysafe.com slash twisted today. You can customize your system, and because Jerry's here, we're going to give you a free security camera. Jerry's just got a shitload of them in his garage, so we're going to give it to you. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there's nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. Uh, That's simplysafe.com slash twisted. Keep your family safe. They deserve it, you son of a bitch. All righty, so everything here has been serious. There hasn't been any lighthearted stories. So this last young lady that I'm going to talk about is no exception. Ada Blackjack. The only thing lighthearted about Ada Blackjack is her last name. I love the name Ada Blackjack. That's a that's that's card player, obviously, but it's a tough bitch. So her claim to fame was on Wrangell Island. Wrangell Island. No one knows what that is. It's 100 miles north of the Siberian mainland and 600 miles north of the nearest good-sized city, which would be Nome, Alaska. So this is literally slap out of nowhere. For most of the year, the Chukki Sea around Wrangell Island is entirely frozen over, encasing it in snowy sea ice. Sailing over it is out of the question, and walking over it is nearly impossible. The island was uninhabited when modern humans finally reached it in the 1880s. And once modern humans uh, discovered it, modern humans immediately began squabbling over who owned it. This piece of shit island that meant nothing to anyone was all of a sudden a hot commodity, right? The Russians called dibs first, as they so often do, dibs. But Canada planned to send a group of settlers over the frozen ocean to live there for a while so Canada could claim it as their own later on. I don't know what the squatter rights are for islands above Siberia, but apparently Canada did. So they were sending a bunch of people over there to claim it as their own. The Canadian government conscripted four young men all in their 20s for the journey, and they planned to send along a few Inuit families with them for support. Not Eskimos, Inuit. But with the expedition scheduled to set sail from Nome, Alaska, only one Inuit woman showed up, and her name was Ada Blackjack. When Ada realized that she was the only idiot to show up, she tried to back out, but the Canadians promised they would find more willing Inuits. See, I said idiot to Inuit, families on the way north, so she agreed to stay on. But they did not find any willing Inuit families on their way north. So the settlers, consisting of four men plus Ada, landed on Wrangell Island in September of 1921. By the way, everything happened in 1921. Their supplies lasted all winter, successfully. And in the short spring-summer of 1922, they began hunting to feed themselves until the next supply ship could arrive in August. Okay? Supply ship is away in August. But the summer was short, 
and it was frozen. And Wrangell Island remained inaccessible to sea ice all that year. This left them fucked. They couldn't find enough food to feed themselves, and the supply ship never got close. Conditions worsened, and the frozen settlers began to starve. In the middle of the second winter, 1922-1923, their rations ran out, and the only edible thing for hundreds of miles, besides each other, the dogs, and the expedition's cat, were polar bears. It was around this time that three of the men decided to try walking south to Siberia. So there were four men. Three of them decided that they're going to walk home. They didn't include Ada in that walk because that fourth man was too ill to come along. So they wanted Ada to stay and take care of him on the island. Or more likely, they thought the sick men would slow them down so Ada would stay and she could die with them. It didn't care. Might as well just stay back and die without burdening the three big men. So the three men left, but they never made it to civilization, likely dying of starvation or scurvy or just taking a wrong step and slipping through the sea ice at some point in their walk on an endless frozen ocean. So now Ada and the sick guy, whose name was Lorne Knight, spent the rest of the winter in total darkness. The winter sun does not rise that far north. Knight was bedridden, likely suffering from scurvy, and he was delirious. All we're hearing about in this uh, episode is people who are going mad and who are delirious. In June, Knight died. And Ada was now utterly and incomprehensibly alone in one of the most remote, frozen islands on Earth. She was 24 years old. This is like Marie Doran type shit. You know what I mean? Ada realized that if she ever did... If help was to ever come, it could only reach the island in late summer, and she didn't have enough food or fuel to survive that long. So one of the greatest survivors in human history did the only thing that could save her. She learned to hunt among the polar bears alone in the sub-freezing polar tundra. The four strong men that she was with were now all dead, and they attempted to self-provide food the previous year, and they were excellent hunters with plenty of experience, plenty of ammunition, and they had hunting dogs, and they still failed miserably. Ada had none of that shit, but what she did have was a child back home, so she had motivation. She had taken this job in part to earn enough money to care for her kid who had tuberculosis. Her husband drowned a couple of years prior, so she was a single mom, and now she's 600 miles across the sea and ice and had no choice but to stay alive so her only son wasn't orphaned. I love this shit. And survived she did, mostly by trapping foxes, collecting bird eggs, and hunting seals, and she burned their blubber for light and heat. Her months of total crushing despair on Wrangell Island must have been beyond words. She never spoke of it much after she returned home on a supply ship that finally found her in August of 1923. She only spoke about it when she had to. She was accused of not doing enough to save the sick man when she abandoned with Knight's family. So this guy who died, and this like always, it's like a, a thorn in the paw. Like she was accused of not doing enough to keep that guy, Lorne Knight, alive. Just like Piggy was accused of eating piñata. Like there's always something. After getting home, she married twice more. She had another son, and she lived to an old age in relative peace. I think she lived past 80. Her gravestone reads, Ada Blackjack, heroine of Wrangell Island. And I would add that she's one of the greatest survivors in history. That's it. That's my girl. And, and I want to talk to anybody who has the balls, the unmitigated gall, to sit there and say, you know, I don't think that you did enough to help that guy. Like, 
you know, why don't you go find the three guys who ditched them both? It, the, the guys who are heading south to Siberia. If you want, if you have, need any more, uh, you know, a better description of what kind of shit they were in, they were heading south right. yeah, yeah. to Siberia. Nobody criticizes them because they're like, you know, they, they, they ended up in some like humpback whale stomach or whatever, but they had the galls to like bitch about this woman for surviving. So we're going to, we're going to tell people, we always want people just to be a little bit more interesting after listening to the show. That's all I want to do. So if you know about Ada Blackjack, maybe you remember what she had done on Wrangell Island. Maybe you won't, maybe you will. Uh, if you want to remember Mary Vincent, I mean, it's one of the worst stories that I've ever had raped and had her arms hacked off and whatnot. If you want to remember about Salvador, Piggy, don't even have to remember his last name, it doesn't matter. He spent 438 days at sea. Marie Dorian was the second Sacagawea, and she went through a ton of shit while pregnant with two other kids. And then finally, you can remember Vesna Vulovic, who was the young lady who had survived a uh, a six-mile fall from JAT Airlines Flight 367. So those are the stories of the survivors that made up the Twisted History of Survivors Part 2. We have plenty of other survivors to talk about as time goes on, but that's the ones that we're going to concentrate or we concentrated on today. Jerry, as always, you're a pleasure to have around. Um, I appreciate your professionalism. Uh, John, thank you so much for doing everything that you're about to do. And obviously, Annie, who did a bunch of research for this. And, I, and Michael Koch, who got this thing started by throwing in the uh, the story of Vesna. So keep the ideas coming in. We'd love to hear them. I believe next week we're going to do Twisted History of New Orleans. Since I'm going to be down there this weekend, I'm going to do Twisted History of New Orleans. Um, Annie's probably going to host it with me because Vibs is on the road and Annie's making the trip with me. And then we're going to have uh, Mince on, Ben Mince on, because he's got a story about – when his grandfather landed in Omaha Beach and we're going to do the World War II Museum and stuff like that. So it's going to be a big episode. Twisted History of New Orleans and we'll have some World War II shit thrown in there. So the museum recap should be out as we're doing it. That'll, that'll be as of. We'll probably replay the Twisted History of World War II, which we did with Chief, just along with it. And then, you know, later on that week, we'll do Twisted History of, uh, of New Orleans. So a big week coming up. And if anybody wants to hear anything, please send it to us on social. We're at Twisted History all over the place. Buy a shirt in the uh, store, for Christ's sake. And uh, that's it. We'll see you guys next week.
price drop? Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.